Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 30. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am very excited today to introduce my special guest, Christopher Kimball. Chris, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Absolutely. All right. Good to have you here. Chris is the president of Christopher Kimball Financial Services, where he provides financial advice and estate planning while helping people manage their assets, including their beloved collector cars. He's been an automotive enthusiast his entire life. And as a child, he spent many summers in England with his mother and an uncle who raced at Silverstone, who had many unique automobiles, including a Delage, Rolls-Royce, and Citroen. Chris's history with cars and motorcycles is long and diverse, and his entrepreneurial ways have resulted in a resume that goes back to detailing cars when he was a very young child to a variety of careers, which eventually led him to the world of financial planning. Chris is passionate about playing the drums and created Woodstick, an event that has raised tens of thousands of dollars for charities and broke the Guinness World Record for the most people playing drums at one time. He has a radio show titled Don't Let Money Rule Your Life, and he is very active in the collector car community, especially with his local Pantera Club, where he is the current president. So Chris, I've told our listeners a little about you. Would you take some time and share some more about your history, your business and career, your interests, and of course, your passion for automobiles? Absolutely. I remember when I was three years old that uh, for an Easter present, I received a giant blow-molded red plastic indie car. And we have, a, we have an old reel-to-reel tape of me saying, uh, for, for Easter, the Easter Wabbit bought me a racing car. <laughs> and I loved that thing. I would slide it down the stairs. It was long enough that it would literally slide down our staircase, reaching speeds of four miles per hour or greater when it hit the bottom. And I loved that car. And I had Hot Wheels cars. I had Corgis and Dinky toys and everything you can imagine. I went through a model building phase where I built cars and tanks and everything you can imagine there as well. It was something I absolutely loved ever since I was a little kid. And as I was growing, we spent summers in England about every three years because my dad was a music director at a college and had the summers off. And my mom was English. So her folks and relatives lived over there. And I remember seeing the weird and wacky European cars when I would go visit. And I was fascinated with them and absolutely loved it. And you mentioned uh, Silverstone. I have a home movie when I was about nine years old of me and my dad watching Silverstone racing. And one of the cars actually wiped out. I remember my dad was so frustrated because that was one of the moments when he decided not to be filming. (laughs) He he kept saying, oh, I could have got that on film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But uh, we we had a lot of interesting vehicles in my mom's family. As you mentioned, my uncle was kind of a car guy and had uh, a classic Rolls-Royce used to drive around in, and a Citroen DS, and a, a Delage, and all sorts of things. And I wasn't old enough to see him race, but he apparently did race when he was younger. And then as my grandfather uh, progressed in his business, he was a builder and 
did very well for himself over there. He had at one point a 57 and a 59, I think it was, or maybe a 56 and a 59 Bentley. Uh, he had a Rolls-Royce. A friend and I went over to England to visit one year, and I got a chance to drive the Rolls and sit in it and smell the great leather and everything. But the funny thing about my grandfather was he was very frugal. Take care of the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves, is what he always <laughs> used to say. So he had two cars uh, at one point. He had a, he had a Rolls Royce and a Yugo. <laughs> oh, well, boy, two extreme ends of the bookend, right? He shopped in the Yugo and do little running around chores. And then for serious driving, he would use the Rolls Royce. But I I love I love English cars. My my younger son currently actually owns an original English Mini, which is marvelous. It's so fun and, and unique, and he gets waves everywhere he goes in that thing. But uh, I you know I I just I don't know where it came from. I don't know why, but I always loved cars. When I was ten years old, my dad and I built a wooden go kart, and we put a little Varum motor. Remember those plastic Varum motors? Oh yeah. Had one on my bike, and it ended up on the back of this go kart. And he would tow me behind our '63 Bel Air station wagon at speeds of up to 35 miles an hour. Oh my gosh! Would you, yeah, would you think of a little wooden go kart going 35? It was it was exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. But uh, I, I remember once we uh, were loading the car into the back of the station wagon. And a police car drove up, and he apparently was a small town. He knew who my dad was. And I remember him saying, Ken, you know, if I'd seen you doing this, I'd have to give you a ticket. We've been getting calls that the little kid might get hurt. And I remember thinking, little kid? I'm 10 years old. Yeah, I'm driving a (laughs) go-kart. Exactly. But I I got a car in high school my senior year. Just after I graduated, got an AMC Ambassador SST with a 360. Cost 600 bucks, and I had to take out a loan to get it. My dad co-signed, and I thought that was the neatest car ever. uh, Of course, it had terrible gas mileage, and the gas crisis was hitting right about then. So I sold it and got a little Toyota Sprinter. And the Sprinter, I fixed up, put mags on it and air dams and a big stereo and all sorts of things. And that was kind of a comical vehicle. It, I thought it looked really cool for a for a red Toyota Sprinter. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but that car, we had all kinds of fun with that. I put a PA horn on the outside and put a little microphone inside so we could talk to people as we drove by and all that sort of thing. And it had all kinds of mechanical problems. It kept breaking down and so on and so forth. I finally got it running well enough to sell it. And I remember I paid about five or six hundred dollars for it, and I sold it for twenty six hundred bucks. Wow. Some guy drove it down to San Diego, and I never saw it again. But I've always liked unique vehicles, and I had a chance in Centralia growing up to buy a 1970 Subaru 360 van. And those are tiny. They have a 360cc air-cooled engine, but I fell in love. I loved that thing. I totally fixed it up. I had a friend that owned a body shop paint it, put a, a flow-through spoiler on the back roof and a side scoop for the engine on the, on the side of the thing. I put, fin, I put uh, fender flares on it, side pipes, uh, front air dam, killer stereo. The entire inside was, was red diamond tuck velour, oh my which gosh. was cool back then. Of course, yeah, wow. <laughs> 
wow. And because I was a you know rock and roll musician, I had to be extra cool. So I made little panels that would snap over the back windows, and then a little curtain that I could pull to totally separate the back of the little van from the front seat. Sure. And although that might sound a bit uh, sketchy, as they say, the thing was so tiny that really no shenanigans could have happened in the back, even if I would have wanted them to. <laughs> you were every father's nightmare when you came to pick up the date. Well, the, the funny thing about the side pipes were, were that they ran from the engine in the back, underneath the car to the front, then to the side pipes, and then back again. Oh, my so gosh. My friend said when I drove it, it sounded like an enraged chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen one of those things. Oh, they're great. They're very rare and very unusual and very, very cute. But it, it again, had all kinds of mechanical problems that probably weren't severe, but were severe enough that the little town of Centralia and neighboring Chehalis did not have a mechanic. Neither of those cities had a mechanic that could possibly fix the thing. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know how to fix it. So I ended up trading it for a Honda CB750 motorcycle, but I wish I'd kept that, that, uh, that van. I I, I sold all that stuff, went on the road with the band for a while, and when I came back, I uh, didn't have any money, so I, I bought an AMC Ambassador station wagon from uh, some parents of a friend of mine, and they were very thoughtful and caring and concerned with my welfare, so they let me buy it for $100 per month, nine months' worth of payment. Hmm. Problem was that eight months into the ownership, the crankshaft broke in half, and the thing was <laughs> towed away for junk. Oh, gosh. I, I got $250 for scrap, and uh, I, was, I was able to not have to pay the last payment. They felt sorry for me and said I could, could uh, not, uh, not have to pay that last $100 payment, but that was a bummer. So I wanted something unique, and I bought a Brat, Subaru Brat. Oh, I remember those. Yeah, put a roll bar on it, had all kinds of fun driving it on the beach and all over the place. It had some mechanical issues, too, from time to time. But I, I remember the stereo system in that. I was working at a stereo shop at the time, and I put 15-inch subwoofers in the back and, and you know, bi-amplified and all kinds of stuff. And it was quite the moving stereo store and good <laughs> advertising for what I was doing at the time. And it, it had, you know, problems, as I mentioned. I finally traded it in. It didn't have reverse gear when I finally traded it in. And by then, I'd saved enough money to buy a, a brand-new rig, which I'd never done before. I bought a 1986 Mazda B200 LX extended cab with a canopy. And it was a pretty nice-looking truck. But again, not willing to leave well enough alone, I immediately called up the J.C. Whitney people, and I got fender flares and running boards and a front window shade and tinted windows, and I put another huge stereo in it. It was a great truck. And even though I owned that thing all pimped out like that, I still managed to convince Vicky, who was my wife, to marry me. And that was <laughs> pretty amazing. Eventually, I got rid of that, got a uh, van, minivan, because we started having kids. Vicky had an 85 Toyota Celica GTS, which is a really nice little car, a little five-speed. Oh, yeah. And that was fun to drive. Um, eventually, it got old and long in the tooth, so I, I bought a Cadillac uh, STS, a Seville STS. That was a really neat car, one of my favorite cars. And then we got a Lexus uh, LX, or excuse me, RX 300 for our family vehicle once the van finally wore out. And then when the Cadillac started nickel and diming me to death, I uh, went ahead and, and got rid of that and got my current daily driver, a Dodge Magnum R. Uh, it's, a, it's the SRT8 version. I couldn't find a, a big Hemi in, in the local area, so I had to actually, actually have it shipped out from Ohio. But it's a great car. I really like it. 
And then the only other piece of car um, trivia that has to do with what I have driven and do drive is that in 2005, my older sister, who was about three years older than me, got real sick, came down with cancer. And yeah. that was very traumatic because it was very serious. She had it in lymph nodes and, and all over the place, and we didn't know if she was going to make it. She did. She survived, which was miraculous. We were very thankful for that. But it, it brought home to me that life is short, and you don't know what's around the corner. So I, I talked to Vicki, and I said, look, there's only been a few things in my life that I've wanted or wanted to do that I haven't, and one of them is I've always wanted a Di Tommaso Pantera. What do you think about me buying one? And she said, well, you know, that'd probably be okay. Two, two things. One, when you buy it, I want you to keep track of every dime you spend on that thing because my wife's a CPA, so she's kind of into that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. and by now I was a financial planner, so I said, yeah, I'll be glad to do that. And then she said, I also would like a remodeled kitchen and all new hardwood floors. Okay. So, so I said, hey, no problem. I actually calculated it. And, and for me to buy the car, take the money and buy the car in uh, present value, future value dollars, basically I would have to work about nine months longer than I had planned to pay for the car. So I thought it was worth it. I picked the thing up, and there's all kinds of stories I could tell you about that car, but it's been great. I've driven it to Phoenix and back twice to San Diego, taken my sons at different times to various places. It's just phenomenal, priceless memories in it with well, that car. Uh, the words of a financial planner is uh, sit down and figure out if you can really afford it, and it might just cost you more than wheels and tires. It might cost you a kitchen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, Chris, as we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote and something that's been instrumental in forming your success in your life. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Chris, take the wheel. Well, it's interesting you'd ask about sayings and philosophy and things because I have a calendar. It's a little tiny calendar made out of, uh, basically it's made out of celluloid, which is a predecessor to plastic. And that belonged to my mom in England back during World War II. She was, of course, very, very young at that point. But that calendar came from her family. Who knows how long it had been around before she was. And every day there's a little saying. And you scroll this little thing day by day till it gets to 31. Then you rewind the scroll, and there's a saying for every day. So I've got like 31 sayings, oh, but there are a few, a few <laughs> that I really like. And one of them is, good enough is rarely good. Mm. And that I like. I like that saying a lot. There's another one. There's always light enough to take the next step. And then I'll just give you one more, and then I'll, I'll stop quoting the calendar. And that is, we were all born originals. Let us not die copies. Mm, wonderful. So I like those things. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's really special that it came from your family. Could you share with us how you've integrated some of those things into your career and into your life and into your passion for cars? Well, sure. My my career track is somewhat varied and eclectic, as you mentioned earlier. I did numbers of things growing up, but I did work for a while at a car stereo installation shop. I loved that. I really enjoyed that. I was also involved with advertising and a few other careers that didn't seem to really connect. But as I work in the financial services business, which I've done for 21 years now, what I found was that all the things that I had done in previous positions as far as jobs and and that sort of thing all contribute to success in what I'm doing now. For example, uh, after 
a number of years in my current profession, I began to realize I was working with a lot of car guys and car gals. They were people I naturally gravitated to, people I enjoyed. And at one point, one of my clients came to me and said, you know, I've got all these collector cars, and I'm probably going to die before my wife does. I want to make sure that she knows what to do with these cars, what they're worth, where to sell them so she doesn't get taken advantage of. Mm. So we made a list together, and I helped him with that. And I began to realize that there are some estate planning issues with cars. And not only that, if people buy and sell cars, there's tax ramifications, depending on how many they buy and sell per year, if they're considered a collector or a, uh, uh, you know, a retailer or whatever. And so that was another thing that was interesting to me. And estate taxes, although they're not as onerous as they were years ago, Washington State, for example, still has a $2 million limit. If you have an estate worth $2 million or more, Washington State will start uh, sticking their hand out wanting a percentage of that. It goes up to 19% currently uh, at a certain level. So if you've got a bunch of collector cars and you know, life insurance and a house and a lot of other real estate or whatever it may be, investments, your estate could be subject to those estate taxes, and we want to take a look at that. And that all sort of fits together. And then the other thing that I do, I have a couple of other specialty areas. One of them over the years is, sadly, I've had some friends go through some pretty nasty divorces. So I work with divorcing couples to try to divide the assets in a fair way, work with the attorneys on that and so forth, and then perhaps end up working with one or the other spouses and managing their assets for them. But cars can often play a part in that. You'll have a a wife that says, gee, honey, I know you have that that car. Isn't that worth something as we divide our assets? And the husband says, oh, it's an old 63 Chevy. Uh, but it turns out it's a split-window Corvette. Well, that <laughs> changes things a little. So those are those are some of the ways that my my car hobby has interfaced with my financial planning profession. No, oh, so that's a wonderful way to integrate that. And so many times those kinds of things can happen. I remember going to an estate sale once, and of course uh, we walked in, and everyone was going through the house, and I walked out to the garage to see what was out there, and there was a an old Mercedes out there, and I asked the the lady, because her husband had died and she was selling everything. And she said, oh, I don't know. I want a couple thousand for it. And I said, "Uh, that car is worth tens of thousands of dollars. And she kind of looked at me and said, it is? I said, "Uh, yes, it is. Don't sell it for a couple thousand dollars. So um, she ended up getting, I think, almost $30,000 for that car and wrote me a nice little thank you note. Yeah, no kidding. You're a good, you're a good man, Mr. Green. Well, you just—I mean—you can't imagine taking advantage of somebody in that situation. I'm sure there there are people that would, but um, at any rate, it's great you provide that service because um, sometimes the family members don't know, and even memorabilia that people have collected that you know all these dash plaques or all these grill badges or books or all these things that could be worth quite a bit to a collector that maybe the family members had no idea what the value was so it's a that's very very true and you know the other the third area of specialty in my business is working with widows and widowers because many times a husband might die who has been running the finances for the house including investments and things and what i've seen sadly is that there are unscrupulous people that will swoop in and take advantage of the emotionally distressed survivor and that is tragic but it's the same situation that you were alluding to with cars you know there are people who don't know what they're worth and would literally sell them for a song unless somebody sits down and really helps them work through that. So, again, when it comes to the work that I do, you've got 
cars, you've got emotional issues, you've got all these things that are all going on at once, and that's the areas in which I seem to be able to work fairly effectively. Chris, let's take a look down the road here at some of the roads you've driven down and really crawl under the hood and, and get our hands a little dirty. Would you share with us a huge challenge or maybe even a big failure in your career that really pushed you to a breaking point, and more importantly, how you overcame that and what you learned from that situation? Boy, you know, that's an interesting question because I think through anyone's life, there are going to be numerous challenges and many, many times when things look pretty dark. One of the first things that comes to my mind is the death of my father. He and I were very, very close, great friends. He was a musician. I'm a musician. We, we shared musical uh, love of the same types of music and things. We, we enjoyed looking at cars. In fact, he took me to car shows when I was a little kid. He appreciated nice cars. Uh, and that was a tough thing because he died in three days. He was unconscious in the morning, and three days later he was gone. That oh was back in goodness. 2003. Yeah, that was that was tough. But that's something that's somewhat inevitable in life. You're going to lose people you love. There, you know, we all die eventually. So, as far as business or other challenges, the thing in my life that's that's probably the biggest challenge is that back when I was about 20 years old, I noticed, or actually my friends began to notice that I had. Uh, basically two modes. I was either extremely excited and happy or extremely depressed and sad. And I thought that was normal and that's how everybody felt. But it turns out I was bipolar. So I never have been hospitalized or anything like that, but it certainly emphasized everything I was experiencing. The highs were tremendous. In fact, I've never done drugs in my life, but I feel like I probably don't need to because that's probably what it feels like when people are on drugs, just euphoric and happy, but the, the flip side of the coin is that when things go badly, I feel it quite intensely, and it can be very, very depressing. So I've you know, mitigated that, learned to live with it, medicated it, and everything's fine. But I still have to deal with that in addition to the normal ups and downs of life. For example, when I went to college, University of Washington, got my advertising degree after I got married, worked hard, working weekends and nights, taking a full load, graduated, get the job in advertising, turns out I hate it. I couldn't stand it. So it lasted a year, and then I got out of advertising completely. And that was discouraging, because I thought, why did I put all that time and money into that career, only to have it completely uh, disappear? Oh, yeah. Um, changing to financial services was, was tough. Um, I'll come back to that in a minute, because probably the greatest struggle wasn't to do with my earning of income or careers. It was when Vicky and I decided to have children. She and I both wanted kids. We got married at 28 and 29, a little older than normal, and, and we, uh, we tried to have kids, did what we felt was the normal thing to do to accomplish that, and after two years, nothing was happening. So we had to do tests and all sorts of things. They couldn't figure out what was going on, and it was becoming extremely stressful because both of us all our lives had wanted nothing more than to be parents. And I remember every month she would go in the bathroom to do the little test, and every month she would burst into tears, sobbing as if someone had just died, and mm. it was horrible. Finally, after three years, we, we got pregnant and had our first son, and then 22 months later, our second. So it ended up having a happy ending, but those three years were probably some of the hardest times and most uh, difficult emotional times I've ever had to experience. But from a, from a, a business standpoint, the biggest challenge was when I made the change to financial services because it was a brand new field for me. I wasn't sure what to expect. I was 
terrified because I was working and supposedly bringing home the bacon. Now, Vicky had a job as a CPA and made pretty good money, but we needed my income to survive. And so to jump into something totally new was scary. I remember uh, being so intimidated that sometimes on my way to the office, I would have to pull the car over because I was having dry heaves because I didn't know if this thing was going to work or not. Oh, wow. And despite the fear, maybe because of it, I succeeded. The first year, I won a laptop for my performance, in fact. The money wasn't that great. I made about 24000 bucks working 60 hours a week. But over time, it got better. My income doubled the second year. It doubled again the third year. And eventually, Vicky was able to retire, and we homeschooled our sons through freshman year of high school and had opportunities to travel and do things that other careers might not have afforded. So I was very, very glad that my wife's Aunt Barbara, one day 21 years ago, sat down with me and said, you know, I think you ought to look into financial services, because that's <laughs> what started the whole ride. Sure. Well, it sounds like all those challenges com combined had a common core perseverance keep trying, keep trying, persevere, and you ended up where you ended up today. So that's great. Thank you for sharing those personal stories with us. That's really kind of you. Chris, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and share a story when you had one of those real aha moments in your career, a time when you realized that an idea or concept that, that was really going to make it, you were going to make it in this career, and tell us about the steps you took to turn that aha moment into success. Well, this, it's interesting, it's kind of a, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg sort of thing, because I, I can remember the most powerful moment in this career for me was when I was with one of my clients. He was a friend of the family, sort of. He knew Vicky before Vicky and I got married, but I got to know him. He's a really good guy, and after a while, he eventually began to let me work with he and his wife in financial planning and investments and so forth, and we developed a pretty close friendship, and the trust that he put in me was evidenced when his daughter was getting married, and we went up to uh, Orcas Island in the San Juans, and uh, they asked me to stay in the same cabin that they were in and spend the weekend up there and play drums in the, in the band, the little wedding band and so forth, and at one point he said, to me that they really considered me family. And I thought, wow, that is the pinnacle of client relationship. Mm -hmm. And we are very, very close. And it's just phenomenal to be able to know that he knows that I have his best interest at heart, honestly and truly. So that was a, a huge uh, boost to my confidence level and to help me understand that those kind of relationships can and do exist in business. People malign you know, big business and Wall Street and investments and all this stuff all the time, and it's, we're always the bad guys in the movies. But you know what? When you do it right, the, the relationships you can forge are, are fantastic. Oh, absolutely. What a wonderful aha moment. That's tremendous. Let's have a little fun and talk a little bit about that first car of yours. If you could remind us what that was and maybe tell us a, a great adventure or one great adventure you had with that car. That car was, it was, they called it the Blue Flame because it did burn a little bit of oil. But it was a 1970 AMC Ambassador SST with shift command and air command. Everything was command. That was their little buzzword. But it was in great shape. It had a blue vinyl top. It was white. looked like a police car. And I drove it home after I bought it. And my mother looked out the window and said, Christopher, for heaven's sake, that's nicer than our car. <laughs> oh, goodness. So I was like 17 years old, and I had this car that looked so great. But, of course, I lowered it, 
and the way I lowered it was by compressing the springs with clamps. <laughs> so oh. I lowered it. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Put moons, yeah, put moons on it. Took the back seat out and put fake fur in the back. And the reason I did that was because I needed something big enough to haul my drum set around. And if I took the back seat out, I could put my entire drum set in the back and in the trunk. The interesting thing about that was it was handy for other things, too. I took a girlfriend to the beach one time for a picnic, and it started to rain. So we literally just got in the back in that little fake fur area and had our little picnic back in the, in the Ambassador because it was big enough to do that. Oh, gosh. But the story that is probably the most interesting with that car was because it looked like a police car, what happened was some friends and I had the brilliant idea of getting one of the lights from our band lighting setup. Uh, you know, we had this rock band with these lights. So we took one of those lights and got the gel from it, the blue gel, and then rigged up a car headlight, which we could plug into the cigarette lighter and hold out the side window oh, to no. make it look like we're, yeah. I think yeah, I know yeah. where you're going with this. The statute of limitations, fortunately, has expired a long time ago. Yes, kid, kids you, at home, do not do this. Do, exactly. Never do this. And I'll tell you what happened to us, and this should scare you enough to, to uh, train you not to do it. And that is that we had fun pulling people over and then speeding away. And we even had a couple of lights in the back with a flip switch. And the guy in the back seat would flip it back and forth to make it flash, looking like the lights that were in the back windows of police cars in those days. So we had this all down. Well, we pulled over this one car. I think it was about a like a 60 Chevy or something. And as we pulled it over, we, of course, drove by laughing with our little lights flashing. And I glanced in the car and noticed it looked like it was full of about four or five Hell's Angels. These guys were big and burly and covered with hair. And they realized very shortly it was not a police car that had pulled them over. It was three stupid high school kids. And they took off after us, and they began chasing us. And it was terrifying because we reached speeds in little old Centralia of over 100 miles per hour, and these guys were insane. I don't know if they were on something or what. They were within three or four inches of our back bumper. At one point, we came to a stop sign, and, and I slowed, and they stopped, and I thought we'd lost them. But what they had done is stopped to pick up rocks. They caught back up to us and began throwing rocks at the car, smashing the left rearview mirror and terrifying us even more. Mm-hmm. We ended up zooming across the Pearl Street Bridge at probably 80 miles an hour with them hot on our tail and then we saw a police car coming the opposite direction which I honked and waved and yelled at trying to get his attention well at that point these guys took off they, they split we started slowing down hoping the policeman would come and rescue us but then we realized we had all this paraphernalia in our car lights and <laughs> blue gel so no. we, we sped up again just enough to throw it out the window onto somebody's lawn before we finally pulled over Policeman showed up. We were so scared. We were white as ghosts and shaking, and we explained, this guy was chasing. It was terrible. Oh, we're going to be killed. So the police said, well, we'll see if we can find him, and he took off, and that was it. <laughs> so I, was, I never did that again, but I, I also bet. didn't get killed by some hooligans, so yeah. I guess it has a happy ending. Oh, my goodness. Oh, your mother's just rolling her eyes right now, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that wasn't the worst of it, but most of the other stuff's completely off my record, so we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> okay, well, that is a wild story, but again, kids, do not do that. Bad, bad idea. So, no is, kidding. Is there a car, Chris, that you've sold in your past that you really wish you still had? Oh, yeah, that little Subaru 360 van. It's it, People will laugh when they hear that, but Way, the way it was fixed up, it looked so great. It was customized. It was. I have some Polaroid pictures of that thing, and I look at it and I just wish it were still in my garage. I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade the Pantera for it, but but still, 
I wish that car were in my garage because it was a, a real kick. <laughs> Is there a current project you're working on right now that has you really excited and fired up? Well, the Woodstick event is ongoing. I started that drum thing 11 years ago and recruited a guy named Don Bennett to help out, and he's been instrumental in growing it. He knows a bunch of famous drummers, and we had 500 and some drummers in Seattle and broke the record there. We had 15 cities one year hooked up with a webcam, all these drummers playing drums at the exact same time. And that event has grown and become fairly well-known, and it's going to be the 12th year here in the Tacoma area in November. And so that is something that I'm always working on that's always exciting. Other than that, growing my business, meeting the right people. I don't really look for volume anymore. I want to work with a select group of people who have a good sense of humor, don't take themselves too seriously, and want me to help them with their investments. I I find that car guys are are kind of like a family, and so that kind of opens the door, and then from there we can can find other commonalities we might have. And So I'm really looking at growing the, the business in that mode, in that area. I really enjoy that. Great. Chris, if you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? You know, I think if I were a car, I think I would be a Pantera. (laughs) And the reason I think that is because if you take a look on the outside, if I get all cleaned up and put on a suit and tie and wear nice shoes and so forth, I can look fairly sophisticated, and I am half English, so I've got that half American, half European thing going on. Very proper. But... When you look below the surface, I'm kind of your typical rock and roll loving hot rod kind of guy, and so I think I think there's some parallels there between me and the Pantera. I don't break down as much as the Pantera, although as I get older, I'm I'm starting to. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Pantera is Italian design, but it has an American engine in it, so I see what you're talking about. That's exactly. great. So, Chris, we're getting up to what I call the last lap here. It's one of my favorite parts of our discussion. And this is where I fire off a series of questions, and you give our listeners very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready to go? Absolutely. All right. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? Best automotive advice I've ever received is to buy a car that is a year or two old but still has factory warranty because you let the first owner take care of the depreciation and then you get a car that is almost new and still is in great shape. Great advice. I was saying those exact same words to my son this morning on our morning walk. So uh, great, great advice. Let the first guy take the depreciation hit. Words from a financial planner. Can you share one of your personal habits that you believe contributes to your success? Yeah, there's there's several. I think one of them is that if you tell somebody you're going to do something, you do it. Just under-promise, over-deliver, however you want to phrase it. The key is be reliable. It astounds me how many people will say, oh, yeah, I'll take care of that. Oh, yeah, we'll do that. Oh, yeah, we'll call back. And they don't. It it blows me away. How can you tell somebody you're going to do something and then not do it? But, unfortunately, some people operate that way. I try to do what I say I'm going to do. Perfect. Are there some resources that you'd like to share with our listeners that you're really fond of? Well, basically, I have 
of course, <laughs> many different areas of my life I enjoy. For example, I'm involved in Rotary. I'm going to be you know, president of our club next year, so I read the Rotarian magazine and so forth. But what I enjoy reading is popular hot rodding, hot rod magazine, and Hemmings Motor News. Those are the car-related resources I tend to gravitate toward. Uh, as far as my business, I read the Journal of Financial Planning every month, and I spend a lot of time on MSN money to keep up on what's happening in the world of finance. So those are probably the resources I use primarily. Perfect. Chris, would you share a book that you've recently read that you really enjoyed? Yeah, there's a couple. One of them isn't quite so recent. One of them uh, I read a while ago. I got it. In fact, it's out of print right now. It's called Extraordinary Automobiles. It's by Peter Van and Gerald Asaria. And I've seen it on eBay for 120 130 bucks. but it's got pictures of really wild and unusual cars, concept cars, uh, you know, by Bertoni and Panther and, and who knows else, who else, lots of different cars in there. And it's back from, I think, probably late 70s, early 80s, if I remember correctly. But, boy, the cars are inventive and imaginative and really, really neat. And then the other book I got more recently is called America's Wildest Show Rods of the 1960s and 1960s. 70s by Scotty Garson, and it, uh, the subtitle of Analysis and Opinions from George Barris, Daryl Starbird, Candy Joe Balian, and others. And it is a fascinating look at the wild and crazy show rods that were being built back in the 50s and 60s. And I've always loved those things. I had a, the beatnik bandit as a Hot Wheels car. I probably built the Revell model of it, too, in my office. I actually have a model, scale model of the silhouette that my younger son and I built together. I love those kind of cars. They're just imaginative and unique, and I just I think they're really cool. Very cool indeed. Well, listeners, I'll make sure that we post all of Chris's comments on his show notes page. Just go to carsyad.com slash Chris Kimball, and all these links will pop up so you can find everything that he's talked about. So, Chris, now we're up to the checkered flag, and this is the last question. It can sometimes be a challenge for people. I call it a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, something you couldn't sell to buy other cars with, and money was no object, what would that car be and why? Well, I have to ask one quick question. Money is no object in terms of the value or purchase price. However, am I going to have to pay for the upkeep and maintenance, or is that going to be covered too? I wouldn't worry about that. <laughs> okay, if I don't worry about that, that I've narrowed it down to just a few. I'll give you the final, the final one. I, I thought about this, and it was really hard to decide. I narrowed it down to... The original Batmobile, a McLaren MP412C, a Bentley Brooklyn's Rolls-Royce Phantom drophead coupe, Aston Martin V12 Vantage, 56 Ford F100, customized, Subaru 360 van, Subaru 360, Amphicar, Jaguar CX75, Jensen Interceptor, Sunbeam Tiger, 70 Corvette 427 coupe, but if I only had to have one, it would be a 1972 Pantera customized by Don Byers, who has a shop out in California. He customizes Panteras and does absolutely beautiful work. So that's, after all things are considered, I'd want a Pantera. That's the car. Well, Ian, you've got your dream car in the garage, so that's pretty darn cool. <laughs> it really is. I'm very thankful for that. That was quite an eclectic list. <laughs> Well, Chris, you've taken us on a great ride today, and I've really, really enjoyed your stories, and I want to thank you for sharing your life with us. If you could give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Pantera, and then let them know what's the best way they can learn more about you and your business, and then we'll say goodbye. 
Yeah, I think if I were to pick one single thought that has helped me throughout the good times and the bad times, it's, it's actually out of the Bible, and it goes like this. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And the point is that we don't know why we're going through what we're going through. And, and things can be truly tragic and awful, but there is a silver lining. We may not know what it is until after we die, but in many cases, it'd be years down the road. We'll look back and we'll say, that's why I went through that, or this is how I've grown from that. And there usually is something you can glean from every experience. That is positive. A wonderful bit of advice. And what's the best way for our listeners to find you? Well, they can go online, chrisvkimble.com. They can give my office a call. It's very easy to remember. Toll-free is 866-ON-A-PLAN. If they're local in Tacoma, Seattle area, they can call 253-722-PLAN. And I'd love to meet with them and go out for coffee and talk about cars. Excellent. Well, listeners, you can find the links that Chris has talked about here at carsyad.com slash Chris Kimball. And if you just go there and type in Chris in the search bar, his show notes page will pop right up. Thank you for being so generous with your time today and your expertise and sharing your experiences with our listeners. Until we talk again, we'll see you down the road. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.